Welcome to Management Matters, the award-winning National Academy of Public Administration podcast where policy meets practice. I'm Terry Gurton, president of the Academy. Our grand challenge focus for February is to connect individuals to meaningful work. And in this episode, I'll be talking with Academy fellow, Barbara Boberg, former managing director of the Education, Workforce and Income Security team at the Government Accountability Office, about her work on labor policies and retirement security. Barbara, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Terry. I love talking about these things. I am looking forward to this conversation. But before we dig in, I would just like to chat a little bit about how you got into this line of work. I mean, we know that once people get to GAO, they tend to stay there for quite a while because the work's so meaningful. But you did some other things before you got there. Tell us a little bit about how you got connected to workforce policy topics. Well, it was it was a little circuitous. I started out at the Urban Institute where I was in the public finance group and did a lot of work on state and local finance and state and local management of what were then the Reagan administration block grants, public pensions, things like that. And working on that for a few years, I really became interested in what would it be like to be on the decision-making side, as opposed to the research side. And so that led me to the DC government, which as I'm sure you know, combined state and local responsibilities. And there was no more ideal place to go there than their budget office. Cause when you're in budget, you see everything. And it was pretty young government at the time, newly independent of the federal government. And there was just a lot going on many innovations. And I learned a lot there. But I realized over time that I actually knew nothing about how the federal government managed its money. And I became interested in that as well. And I thought there was no better place than GAO because they were invigorating this budget issues group there. And I thought, well, you know, I'm really going to learn a lot here. I learn about how we debt finance things in the federal government, about budget process, about sequestration, all those things. But I ended up moving over to a more workforce-oriented area because they needed someone to take on income security. So social security, retirement security in particular. And I did know by that time a lot about retirement security and social security financing. And then once I got over to education, workforce, and income security, I was able to expand my portfolio to include you know, employment and unemployment issues, worker training, worker protection, so important. So I'm really grateful to all these places for giving me those opportunities. I think you know what you've just described is something we hear from so many of our fellows when we ask this question, which is, it's not a career ladder, it's a career jungle gym, and you sometimes go sideways, and each time you pick up more information. But I love that you settled in on this workforce challenge issue, because as we hear all the time in the news, there's so many issues around worker protection and security and income security and retirement security you just laid out on the table. We're going to talk, I know, a lot about those, but as a lead-in question to those topics, one of the things that I would love to hear your thought on is this grand challenge about connecting individuals to meaningful work. When we say meaningful work, from your background, what does that make you think of? 
Well, the first thing I thought of that was that meaningful work is in the eye of the beholder. So you mentioned that people go to GAO, they tend to stay. I thought I would go there for a couple of years. I was going to learn about the federal budget, and then I'm going to do something else. Maybe I go back to state and local. But being a GAO enables you to see the whole federal government. You can move around there. But it's incredibly meaningful work, at least it was to me, that I thought there was nothing better in the world than being able to look at public policies and the way they're implemented and make recommendations to congressional policymakers. But do not get me wrong, they did not always do the things that we recommended, but at least we knew that we got this information in front of them. That to me was really meaningful. But, you know, I can imagine that other people find meaning in other ways. So if you're an electrician, you were keeping people's houses from burning down. That's pretty meaningful. So I'm just thinking that meaning varies. I know that you are also interested in what is quality work, which I think in contrast, that's a pretty hard definition there that everyone can agree on, I think, that meaningful work can vary, but quality work, you know, you've got reasonable pay, you've got benefits, you get health, you've got retirement, sick leave personal time off and the ability to actually use it, very important. Worker safety, very important. You want to be able to go to work and not worry about losing a limb or being, you know, attacked, sexually attacked in a hallway. I think everybody could agree on those things. And maybe what constitutes good pay and good benefits may be a little relative, but I do think that that is something we can all agree on. And so relatively few of us have. I really appreciate you sort of comparing and contrasting meaningful work with a quality job because they're different facets, but they all get around to the the point of what we want when we go to work. And I know that you've looked a lot at employment policies and the assumptions behind them and how they're working to get people quality jobs and meaningful work. And I also know you have some thoughts about what might be missing. So as our policymakers are approaching employment issues these days, are there things that you think they ought to be looking at that they aren't? Well, one of my biggest concerns, and I just mentioned workplace safety, is that I'm very concerned that workers are not well protected. That, and of course it varies, but it's so basic. And the Public policies don't really consistently support worksite inspections or safety enforcement, at least not sufficiently. And I thought this was really highlighted during the pandemic. One of the least safe occupations in America is being a meat packer. A lot of, a lot of slicing going on and you're on your feet all day and all of the, you know, you're working on the clock there, you're trying to meet timing standards. And then there was COVID and they weren't protected from COVID either. So I I just think that's sort of emblematic of where we are. We're really struggling with how much oversight do you want from the federal government on these things? But at the same time, people are losing fingers and just really, and getting deathly ill and not really being protected from those things. Well, you mentioned meatpacking and I think that's an example of what we might call 
physically challenging jobs. And so much of our conversations these days around return to the office and remote work kind of all presumes that everybody wears a white collar to work. And there's lots of jobs that aren't that way. When we talk about physically challenging jobs, is that category growing, shrinking, staying the same? I'm so glad you asked this because I chaired a task force for the National Academy of Social Insurance on older workers in physically challenging jobs. This was funded by the AARP. It was very interested in how, in particular, older workers are treated with regard to social security disability. But we really wanted to focus in particular on people in physically challenging occupations because they are probably the ones who are most at risk. So we know some things about them. We don't know a lot because there's not a lot of data out there. And what research has been done has been variable in how they define older worker, how they define physically challenging jobs, what time period they looked at. But we do know there are at least 10 million such workers over the age of 58. It's a growing number. They are disproportionately people of color, people who live in rural areas, people with less educational attainment than average. And women are a growing part of this group as well. So these are people who are stooping and lifting, who, you know, warehouse workers, caregivers, nursing home aides, and increasingly in the service sector. And our concern about them was that as they grow older, like most of us, they become less physically capable. But unlike you know, me, I was at a desk my entire work life. So that was not really a problem. They're doing jobs that require them to be physically capable. This makes them need to look for alternatives, and there aren't many. So I can go on and on. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go on a little bit because, you know, as you're describing this workforce, I keep thinking, when was the last time I heard anybody? in government at any level, talk about the needs of this workforce. What keeps us from seeing them? I think that we tend to talk about large groups and averages. So, you know, we say on average, people are living longer, although I know there's been a little dip in life expectancy, but on average, people are able to work longer. And that's great. On average, that means there are some people who can work a lot longer and you're going to live a lot longer. And there are some others on the other side of that average who are not going to have those ideal conditions. And it concerns me that we're really not thinking about the, the tales of these distributions. And there hadn't until recently really been much on the older workers in physically challenging jobs and what's available to them. I'm hoping that our report, and there are a couple other things that have come out recently, will help. But until recently, these people have been invisible. They've been invisible to policymakers. They've been invisible to the national conversation about, say, Social Security. They're invisible. Well, as I was looking at the report, Barbara, that description really struck me, that this group is is invisible. And, and so I'd like us to 
dig in a little bit about what happens when those Venn diagrams of physically challenging jobs and older workers intersect, because the report lays out some really complicated interactions. Can you share some of those with us? Well, so if you're in one of these occupations and you are becoming less capable of doing this work, and in so many of these, people are are timed in how long it takes them to do X, Y, or Z. And so they may be taking them longer. They may find it difficult to do it. So they could ask for an accommodation from their employer. But others have researched this and found that people don't like to do that because they're afraid it's going to make the employer angry with them and they might get fired. And even if they ask, they may not get it. Most don't. If they can't do their job, they may try to find a more sedentary job, but those have generally higher educational requirements and they may not qualify for those jobs. So they can, maybe they can go on unemployment for a while. It takes older workers a lot longer to find a job than a younger worker. And so, you know, one of the things we were concerned about is that everybody's treated the same in unemployment, no matter what your age. We had suggested that we ought to rethink how long people can get benefits when they're older. But they can also apply to SSA for disability, which is a really complicated process, very difficult to navigate. They may not be able to do it. So many people can't. And then the answer is more likely than not to be no. And so then what? If they know about training programs that the Department of Labor sponsors, maybe they can retrain in some way. But by and large, people are waiting until they reach age 62 so they can claim Social Security. That's the earliest eligibility age. And so the concern I have with Social Security and doing that is that they they get reduced benefits because they're applying early. And so they would get their monthly benefit would be 30% less than the monthly benefit for someone who was able to eke it out to the full retirement age, which for most people now is 66 or 67. And if they could, you know, compared to the people who can wait until their age 70, it's a 40% difference. They don't really have a choice here, even though I know the whole conversation about early eligibility for Social Security was to give people a choice because people have different situations. These folks don't really have a choice. They're just kind of doomed. Wow. I mean, you, you paint such a stark picture here, and I just kind of want to summarize because what you're hearing ought to motivate all of us through compassion and policy programs to see what we can do. But older workers in low-income jobs have less flexibility to save for retirement, right? So you talked about retirement insecurity. So they need to retire as soon as they possibly can. And you just mentioned the impact of taking social security at the earliest possible age. And then they have physical challenges as a result of a lifetime of hard working conditions, but they may not be able to navigate the disability payments. And they may be disadvantaged in seeking new work because of age discrimination. So when I think about all that, and I just re-say it out loud, it sounds like there's an awful lot of holes in the safety net. For these people in particular, yes. And we had, this task force had 30 different options that we suggested that, that I know just a few 
30 different <laughs> options, most of them addressing social security programs, but some to labor and some, you know, to improve the way that we enforce worker accommodation. But we tried to do things that could raise income for people in social security that could make the disability process a little more accessible and could actually deal with the kinds of occupations these people have been in, that their occupational database is not very up to date. And they know they have to do something different, but doing something different would help a lot of people, but also these people. We also talked about that the Department of Labor really would benefit from looking at older workers across the department. They need to have something that's more cross-cutting, like they have a women's bureau. They don't have an older workers bureau. They would do well to work with other federal agencies in trying to coordinate the kinds of help that they can provide to people. Some of these could be done together. These options, they don't have to be. They can stand on their own. But we think it would help. So do most of those policy options require regulatory change or do they need statutory provisions? Well, there are a few that would need statutory provisions, particularly we have this great option that's probably one of the most innovative that was originally created by Christian Weller and Rebecca Vallis for NASI, and it's the bridge benefit where you could get half the difference between an early claim and a full claim that for certain people that would help carry them forward. You wouldn't even have to do it only for people who turned age 62. You could do it younger, but it, it would require statutory change. You would have, it, it would involve a greater cost. We did not look at cost in this report, which I'm sure you know we might be criticized for, but we know that that most things do cost money. Well, so we we talked a little bit about what government agencies could do there. What is the responsibility of the private sector employers here? Could they, should they do anything to help stabilize the situation for these older workers? So I, I have a couple of things. One, going back to my retirement roots. I think it's a travesty that people are no longer really getting a lot of retirement support from their employers. And that, you know, we've moved from a system, a defined benefit system, where the employer put in a lot of money, maybe the worker did as well, but there was a promised benefit at the end that wasn't reliant on what the stock market happened to be doing when you retired. But now, if people have benefits at all, and almost half of the workers at any given time don't. But if people have benefits at all, it's a 401k-like benefit where you can save money. And maybe if you're really fortunate, your employer is putting money into it also. But I think we've made people feel that it's their problem to save for retirement. And just they're crossing their fingers that says security is going to be enough. And it's just, you know, we've all become, had to become financial experts. And I just think that's hard on people who are working all day and they got to come home and think about, okay, what should I be doing with this? Should this be a Roth IRA or, you know, I mean, really, 
So I'm concerned about that. And I think employers could do better in, you know, maybe you're not going to have a defined benefit plan. I understand that's complicated and it is a an obligation to the employer that would concern an employer. But have a 401k and match what people put in. Take advantage of the regulatory flexibilities that allow you to incentivize people not only to the automatic enrollment, but automatic escalation. You could do those things. And that would help people build retirement accounts. But I'm still going to be upset about how we essentially told people, if you don't have retirement income, it's your fault. The other thing that I think employers could do is make it really clear that people, if they need accommodation, should come to you and talk to you without fear. And that you will take seriously what their concerns are and how you can continue to have them do their work in a different way. And I don't don't think that most employees are feeling it right now. I think that would be really important. I mean, so you mentioned the automatic enrollment in 401ks and opt out versus opt in. Are you seeing in the advancement of a number of new labor contracts, labor union successes, are they addressing this issue around older workers or accommodations? Is that a mechanism where older workers might be able to to navigate some of this successfully? I haven't really studied union contracts, but I think that a number of them are really focused on sustaining retirement benefits or improving them. We've seen some of this industry recently, that will certainly help people if they're not already an older worker and they don't have time for it really to kick in. But I do think that that makes a difference. Yeah. Pushing back towards uh, more of the defined benefits or or planned uh, retirement compensation, I guess, for older workers. When I, I leave the auto workers, it was the issue of the tiered benefits. So they were... I believe successfully suggesting that you're not going to have people doing the same job with two different benefit plans, essentially, or the same benefit plan, but one is generous and one is not. Right, right. Are there areas where you're seeing progress on these issues? Are like any industries or any geographies or any place where they're really taking this issue of older workers and physically challenging jobs seriously? You know, not a lot, to be honest. I think that the fact that more researchers are looking at this issue is a really positive thing because I don't think people were, policymakers were hearing much about this group of people. So they're going to become more visible, I think. But an example of, so one of my greatest concerns in all of this, I know you asked about progress, but now I'm going to (laughs) it, is Let's talk about raising the Social Security retirement age. You know, people like you and I, Terry, can work until we're age 70 and beyond. And so we have that choice or we can choose to go early. But this particular group doesn't have a choice. And I don't know if you know how it works at Social Security, but if they raise the retirement age, 
they can keep the early eligibility age at age 62, but it will result in a reduction of monthly benefits if you claim at that age. And that would just be a disaster for this group of people. So I'm not saying that you can't raise the retirement age, but I'm suggesting let's look at particularly this one tail of the distribution and how can we mitigate the impact on this group of people because it's not a choice. Well, you you talked just a minute ago about more researchers doing work in this space. What else can we do to make this issue more visible, get it on the plate of policymakers and try to drive action? Obviously, the report that you led for NASI is one way, but are there other organizations or platforms or programs where we could really raise the visibility of this uh, important and vulnerable class? Well, I think the visibility has a lot to do with the information that's out there. And so I think that, you know, some of the groups who I know are are very opposed to raising retirement age, just kind of in general, I think will bring this up in particular. I think certainly AARP is very interested in it. I think making it more clear that we're not all just people working at our desks. Right is really important. I mean, even people who really know about older workers have said to me, oh, I don't know why you're doing this thing on physically challenging jobs, because there just aren't that many of them anymore. I'm like, you're thinking about manufacturing and that jobs in the manufacturing sector had declined. But this it's just that the nature of some of this work has changed. And, you know, I was talking about it's moved more into the service sector. And then, of course, healthcare. If you're a caregiver or a nursing home aide, you're, you're stooping and lifting. You're lifting some pretty hefty people. They're just not thinking about it the right way. So I, I do think that more things like this at Napa and getting the word out, other organizations picking it up and talking about it will really help. Barbara, I I am so grateful for this conversation today because I think you've landed on a topic here that is so important. Probably if all of us thought about a family member somewhere, we've got we've got one of these people, you know, not too far removed from us and really thinking about what it means to get older doing this work is something that we as a nation need to deal with. So I really appreciate your conversation today. Thank you for the report. We'll put the link to the report in the notes so that our listeners can check it out for themselves. And we'll keep our eyes on this as part of our meaningful work conversation. So thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for this conversation. As you know, as you can tell, I really feel passionately about this and I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, Barbara. For our listeners, check back every Monday for a new episode from the Academy as we work to build a just, fair, and inclusive government that strengthens communities and protects democracy.